0: Well, as you're able, let's take our copies of the scriptures and stand with me as we turn in the Old Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I'll be reading verses 29 to 33 this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning at verse 29. This is during the days of Judah alone. Those of you that are familiar with the Bible periods, the northern kingdom's been destroyed, carried away by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom finds herself really in the final years of her life. She is in the last half century of her existence as a, uh, a political commonwealth. And here now as Josiah is on the throne and seeking the will of God and the way of God for his people, listen to the word of God about this reformation. Second Chronicles 34 beginning at verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of Yahweh with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of Yahweh. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before Yahweh to follow Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel, and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve Yahweh their God. All his days they did not depart from following Yahweh, God of their fathers. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is Reformation Sunday, which is a religious holiday for those who don't believe in them. And uh, you, it's, it's actually kind of humorous and, uh, that a lot of churches that would never preach on Jesus' birth around christmas time will preach on sola fide today they will preach on the principle of justification by faith alone and praise god uh, that they will Uh, it's uh, it's not a bad thing for us to remember that god has not abandoned his church Uh, this is not a holier lord's day than any other lord's day the new covenant calendar has one holy day on it it's the lord's day there's 52 of them every year uh, but it's not inappropriate for us today to say, well, you know, a long time ago, a man named Martin Luther began reading his Greek New Testament and realized there needed to be widespread repentance in the church. And uh, he had no idea how, how far that was going to go. He had no idea uh, of the ways in which God was going to reform him and reform many others through his influence, but praise God that his spirit continues to work Uh, in and among his people. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And although Luther did not know it at the time, that act came to be regarded as the start of the Protestant Reformation. Now, we've said many times in midweek lectures and in other sermons and classes that we've done that that wasn't really the beginning of Reformation in the church. It it was just simply a pivotal moment. It was kind of reaching critical mass of work that God's Spirit had been stirring for many generations prior to that time. But in the years following that act by Luther, many of those who shared Luther's objections to the doctrine of penance, to the sale of indulgences, to papal authority, and to a sacerdotal form of righteousness, they came to be known as Lutherans. Now, names evolve over time, and eventually there came to be distinctions between those who were all known as Lutherans at first, and those who are still known as Lutherans today, and various other members of the Protestant camp where we ourselves would fall. But on the anniversary of Luther's courageous protest, many of these historically aware, confessionally reformed, and Protestant churches continue to give thanks to God for that work of grace that he did on that day. Now, here at ROPC, we are a Presbyterian, Reformed, Protestant, Catholic, and Christian church in ascending order of priority, and you can stay tuned in future weeks for some more development of that idea. That's kind of the way that you would uh, give a taxonomy of our congregation. We are Presbyterian, Reformed, Protestant, Catholic, and fundamentally and most importantly, Christian We are the offspring of Luther's courageous protest, but of course, we are not his only offspring. And therefore, while the anniversary of the Reformation is an important one for us and for our identity and history, it's not the only uh, important historical date uh, that we might take note of and thank God for. It's not the most important thing that has ever happened in terms of determining who we are today. Luther was not seeking to establish a new church. He was simply calling for repentance and biblical change in the old church, the only church, the church which Christ established and over which he rules. In fact, if our history began in 1517 when Luther nailed that paper to the church door that day, then we really would be what many Roman Catholic critics and apologists have charged us with being over the years, and that is schismatics. You know, if we said our our church began in 1517 when Luther began his protest, well, then we would be followers of a false teacher, and we should repent and return to the church in Rome. But, of course, that's not what happened. Our church didn't begin in 1517, and you should not think or speak as if it did. You should recognize there's a lot of history. There's a lot of work that the Holy Spirit has been doing long before Martin Luther began to do what he did. Now, that does not make the Reformation unimportant. It simply places it in a broader historical context of Reformation and repentance. It's very important. This idea of Reformation and this event of Reformation, it's important, but we must think about it biblically not merely historically, not merely sociologically. We have to learn to think about it biblically. One of the slogans of reformed churches is ecclesia reformata semper reformanda. Now that uh, that expression, the reformed church is always reforming, uh, is not as ancient as a lot of you assume. It actually is much closer to your birthday than to Luther nailing that uh, paper on the church door. But nonetheless, It is a good expression. The Reformed Church is always reforming. It expresses a faithful idea. In fact, it expresses an ancient idea, a biblical idea, one that we see many centuries before the Protestant Reformation began. Throughout the Old Testament, we notice narratives of biblical reformation among the people of God. After the monarchy was established in Israel, after the temple was built at Jerusalem, it became necessary for righteous kings in both Israel and Judah to begin reforming the nation's worship and public piety because there were constantly errors creeping in. There was false doctrine and idolatry in the northern kingdom. There were various types of negligence and syncretism in the southern kingdom. And so you see God raising up prophets and priests and kings and just ordinary people, ordinary Israelites who are faithfully calling the nation of Israel, the people of God, to reformation and repentance. The southern kingdom of Judah had a number of kings that we might call reformers. Now, some of them were very limited in the extent of their religious reforms. We think about the third king of the southern kingdom, Asa. He led certain moral reforms. He prohibited idolatry in Jerusalem itself, but he left the idolatrous shrines in outlying areas intact. He would say, you can't do this in the city limits, but if you're out in the county, you can get away with a lot. And that continues to be true to this day. Now, Asa's son and successor, Jehoshaphat, was also a reformer. Now, his reformation was much like his father's. It was limited in its extent, but it was a little bit more comprehensive. He was was teaching the people the word of God. He was teaching people the law of God. And generally, Jehoshaphat, as an individual, remained more loyal to God than his father had But there were later kings who were much more thorough in their attempts to bring Judah's worship and morality into alignment with God's law. And two of those kings especially stand out, Hezekiah and Josiah, about whom we read just a moment ago. Both of those kings renovated the temple itself, they removed the idols that they found, they went to war against idolatry even outside of the city of Jerusalem. They reinstituted biblical feasts and worship, and they committed the nation to renewed faithfulness in covenant with the Lord. This is the work of a faithful magistrate. You notice what Josiah does there. He says, Listen, we're the people of God. Yahweh is your true king, and, and his law is your law. Like you're you're supposed to honor this law. This is the work that Josiah did in leading the people in national repentance. Now, in the northern kingdom, there were not really as many reforming kings. There were many great reforming prophets. But really only one king who stands out in the northern kingdom who was a reformer in any real sense, and that was King Jehu. You might remember that Jehu made war on Ahab's house, and he destroyed the Baal cult which King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had established during their administration. But Jehu's reforms were very incomplete. He only took the kingdom back to the first king of Israel's original error. You'll remember that the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam, had placed golden calves at Dan and Bethel, at the northern and southern borders of the kingdom. So you would have to pass one of those shrines if you wanted to go to Jerusalem to worship. In other words, it was always more convenient to visit Jeroboam's church than it was to go to Yahweh's church. And he changed the priesthood. He changed the requirements for the priesthood. He changed the religious calendar that God had given to his people to observe. And yet, throughout all of those changes, Jeroboam said, we are still worshiping the same God. I said, this, is, this is different than what later kings would do when they would bring in false gods and they would say, now, instead of worshiping Yahweh or in addition to worshiping Yahweh, we're going to worship Baal or Chemosh or one of these other deities. No, Jeroboam said, we're still worshiping Yahweh. We're the people of Yahweh. We just want to update things a little bit. We want to innovate a little bit. We want a religion that is more comfortable and more convenient for all of you. Well, Jehu, when he is raised up by God to the throne, he punishes the household of Ahab for their great wickedness. He destroys the institutionalized false church that Ahab and Jezebel had set up, but he doesn't deal with Jeroboam's error. He looks at Jeroboam's religion. And he says, well, it's the religion of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who put me on the throne. This is the way that by that time, for many generations, we've been worshiping Yahweh. And so we'll just leave that intact. See, this is a, this is a reminder that whenever you do something a certain way over time, that kind of becomes con- traditional. And you begin to think, well, that's the right way to do it because it's how dad did it. It's how granddad did it. It's how great granddad did it. And, and, and you never stop to think maybe, is that how the Lord actually wanted us to do it? Now, Jeroboam had set up golden calves for a historical reason. You might remember there's some biblical precedent for this. I mean, you could find in the Old Testament a biblical example of calf worship, worshiping Yahweh through a a golden calf. But, of course, it's a negative example. You'll remember this is what the children of Israel did at Mount Sinai. Moses is gone for six weeks, and they say, well, we don't know if he's coming back. Aaron, we want you to make gods to go before us. Now, they wanted gods to go before them, Aaron makes a golden calf and says, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. This is Yahweh. Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. You look at your Old Testament. That's what he says. And then when Moses comes and confronts him, he says, Aaron, what in the world are you doing? And Aaron said, well, I don't know what happened. Like, they gave me their earrings and I threw the gold into the fire and out popped this calf. (laughs) Strange how that happens. Well, Jeroboam is taking the people back to forms of religion that are familiar to them, that have some historical basis, but that are fundamentally unlawful. They're contrary to the law of God that he gave to the people at Mount Sinai. And what you see in Jehu's Reformation, which is, which is to be praised, it's commendable in one sense. What you see in Jehu's Reformation is the danger of leaving the job unfinished. And saying, okay, we, we've had the Reformation, now we're done. Now we're done. Oh, there's always more to do because we are sinners. Because people tend to... Turn from the way of God. Now, now maybe you don't have to destroy the cult of Baal again. Jehu took care of that. But are there other ways in which we need to humble ourselves before God and repent? Fundamentally, what you have to decide in Reformation is whether you are going to reform like Jehu or like Josiah. Jehu goes to war against a specific error. And I, I, would, I want to say this carefully and humbly today. But I think that there are some Protestants that they, that they think the errors of the 16th century, the errors that Luther's dealing with, the errors that Calvin in the next generation deals with, the, the errors that our Reformed confessions deal with, that, that's it. Those are the errors. It's like, well, those are important errors. Yes, burn the idols of Baal. Let's get rid of these kinds of wickedness. But, but are we going to just reform like Jehu? Are we going to just look through a telescope? At one particular error and ignore the golden calf in the room? Or are we going to be more like Josiah? Josiah goes back to the law. That's the difference. That's what made the difference. It wasn't that Jehu says, "I, I don't like this and I like this. And Josiah says, well, I don't like this or this. That's not the difference. The difference is Jehu goes to war against a very specific issue and then he's finished. Josiah goes back to the scriptures. As he's renovating the temple, the priests discover a portion of the law that Josiah, at least, had never seen before. And when they read it to the king, he tears his clothes. He is so distressed. He tears his garments, and he weeps, and he says, we have, we have sinned against God. And that's what prompts the more thoroughgoing reform that Josiah led. Jehu doesn't fully reform the northern church. He simply resets it to an earlier stage of of corruption. But Josiah, within the the limits of human frailty, it's it's not perfect. It's never perfect. And if you say, well, Josiah, he led the people in renewing covenant with God, but not all of them were truly converted, pastor. Uh, Well, that's right. That's right. Because Josiah is not the Holy Spirit. He cannot tinker with a person's heart, but he can, as the king say, this is what we're going to do. We are not going to allow this kind of foolishness to go on any longer. We are not going to rebel against God's Word. We're going to obey it instead. And what King Josiah is trying to do is really return to the Lord. And it might have been easy for Josiah at some point in this process to say, you know, we're doing good things in this Reformation project, but let's not get too crazy. You know, we we don't want to become religious extremists. And if we make too many changes people are going to get upset. That's always, that's always what happens, right? Like, Josiah, why can't you be a little bit more like Jehu? Like, let's just behead all of the you know, heirs of the previous regime. Let's stack their heads, and uh, that'll be fun. And let's burn down a temple. That, that'll be fun. And then, and then could we just, like, be done? Like, we'll just be done. And Josiah keeps saying, no, we need to tear down that idol. We need to burn those bones on the altar. We need to clean out the temple. We need to remodel the structure. We need to have a national assembly. We need to corporately pray. We need to corporately repent. We need to renew covenant with God. And he's left off preaching and gone to meddling when he's getting into the affairs of every person's life. Josiah, I want you to take care of his problem, not my problem. But Josiah says, this is our problem. We have to turn back to the word of the Lord. And anything less than that, is not obedience to God. I think some people in our nation are looking around and seeing how bad things have gotten and wishing that we could go back to the good old days of the Reagan revolution in the 1980s. I mean, like if you lived in my house, you would know all of my children have been faithfully catechized throughout their life to believe that the 1980s was the pinnacle of human civilization. (laughs) Right? I mean, the 80s were amazing. Just no, they weren't, right? Let's be realistic about this. No, they weren't. Uh, we might say that they're preferable to some of the madness that we see today, but you're, you're suggesting that people weren't sinners in the, in the 80s or that everything was as it should be or aligned with biblical law? No, no, of course not. Other people of an earlier generation maybe want to get back to the happy days of post-World War II prosperity in the 1950s, right? And you just keep rewinding the clock and say, when do we finally get to the Mayberry moment, right? and now everything is as it should be. But the reality is the sexual revolution had begun many decades before the 1980s, and that cancer was already well advanced and was not gonna be reversed by economic prosperity. And similarly, a socialist restructuring of the federal government and social welfare had happened long before the 1950s, And so beneath that facade of prosperity and security lurked a fundamental and fatal flaw in the power structures of our nation. We see the same thing in churches today. In many churches, even conservative and reformed ones, we recognize that in many ways the modern American church around us has become bankrupt. And so our solution, we imagine, is to return to the good old days of an earlier era. And some conservative churches think of the 1950s as that. Right? That was the age of piety and stability. Or for others, it might be the revivalism of the 1800s. If we could just get back to having tent meetings you know, for two weeks where everybody basically drops what they're doing and we just come together and have uh, revival services to rededicate ourselves to the Lord. Or for those of us in Reformed churches, maybe it's a little earlier than that. Some it might be the the Great Awakenings, the, the preaching of Whitfield and Edwards in the 1700s or the Puritan piety of the 1600s or the thrill of the Reformation itself in the 1500s. You know, we imagine if we could just get back to Geneva in Calvin's day, then everything would be fine. Have you actually read the history of Geneva in Calvin's day? Better than some of what we have, yes, right? But not yet all that God intends the kingdom to be. If you rent a movie from the library, I'm, I'm trying hard to make this analogy work because this used to be easier when you had to rewind things, right? Right? If you rent a movie from the library and you find that the image freezes because of a scratch on the disc, you cannot restart the movie and expect it to work the second time, right? Those of you who remember the days when we did have to rewind music and movies, you know, you, you get to the part where it's skipping and you just rewind to the beginning of the movie or the beginning of the song and then you take a second run at it, but it that doesn't work. And that's what many people want to do when it comes to Reformation. That's what Jehu did. Let's, let's just get back before the time of Ahab. Let's get back before the time of institutionalized Baalism. Let's just get back to the good old days of Jeroboam when everything was great and we were worshiping God with golden calves. That's not so great. We have to be like Josiah. We have to go back to the Word, to the Word and the testimony. We have to say, God, what do you want? Maybe we haven't seen it in our day. Maybe we haven't seen it in generations but we have to go back to the word of God. You cannot simply back up to an earlier stage of the same stupidity that got you here and expect a different result the second time. If a nation or a church or a family or an individual's life, this could be about reformation in your life, right? You've got a pornography problem. You've got a substance abuse problem. You've got problems in your marriage. You're not getting along with your kids. Whatever it is. Reformation has to happen the same way. There is repentance and a return to the Word of God, and the Word of God tells us how far that Reformation is going to go. There has to be real, substantial, thorough repentance, not just a little bit of behavior modification, not just one or two errors that are fixed. You have to repent and reform the entire program. Now... None of that is to suggest that Revol- Reformation should be a complete dismantling of the faith or of worship or of culture. We're not saying burn it all to the ground and start over. Quite the contrary. Reformation is not revolution. Now, the experience might feel revolutionary to those that are involved in it, but it's not revolution. In many ways, what Jehu did in the Northern Kingdom was a revolution not a reformation. He's taking power. He's taking the throne. He is deposing and executing a previous administration. He is altering the religious structures that had supported that prior regime. He's making war. That's revolution, not reformation. Compare that to Josiah's reformation, which is scripture-driven. It's aimed at bringing the nation into obedient conformity to God's law. He's not merely looking to eliminate certain features of the religion or the political structure. He's just saying, what does God's law teach us to be and to do? That's what we want to pursue. The rise of Islam is a good illustration of revolution as opposed to reformation. Islam's prophet, Muhammad, claimed to have seen visions leading to the establishment of a new faith, essentially, And this conveniently coincided with Muhammad's aspirations for violence and glory. It's great when, you know, God gives you a vision that just uh, tells you his will is for you to do exactly what you wanted to do. The rise of this new religion was justified in part by the apparent corruption of Judaism and Christianity in Muhammad's day. This is why you have so many mistaken uh, understandings of Christian theology in the Quran is because Muhammad is trying to represent Christianity in a way, but he clearly doesn't understand it. He's saying that that, that these people are all corrupt. The The people of the book, they've missed it, right? There are further revelations you need to know, but he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. Jehu did not attempt to reform Baalism. He destroyed it. Israel was not supposed to improve Canaanite religion and culture. They were to wipe it out. There is a place for that kind of revolution. There is a biblical doctrine of that. Maybe we need to have a, another sermon on that topic. There's a biblical place to say, God doesn't call for reformation here. He calls for annihilation. Like you, you put to death that which is earthly in you. You put to death your sin, your lust, all of these things that stand opposed to God. But that's not reformation. That is the kind of revolution that Jehu perpetrated uh, by God's command. There was a time and a place for that kind of war against false religion and usurpers, but it is not the proper mode for enacting change in the Christian church. Men who try to reform the church that way are schismatics. They create division. They harm the sheep. That's not what we want to do. When revolution happens in quasi Christian circles, the result is usually some kind of reinvention of the Christian faith. And this is the genesis of many Christian cults, some of which persist even today. You think about Mormonism, for example, there is a common uh, visionary point of origin between both Islam and Mormonism that leads to a complete reworking in the latter case of Christianity. Today, since Since Mitt Romney ran for president, Mormons will tell you, we are Christians too. But in fact, their faith is radically, structurally, irreconcilably different. They will deny every line of the ancient Christian creeds. God, in their thinking, was once a man, and man has the potential to one day become God. The Father and Son are not one being, but they are separate and physical entities. And in Mormonism, you have new scriptures, new apostles, entirely different forms of worship and religion created under the guise of another revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not reformation. That's not revolution. That's reinvention. That's taking Christian names and categories and creating something entirely new associated with them. And this error can be more subtle than you think. Mormonism is is kind of an obvious and extreme example, but it's easy for us to start to recreate the Christian faith in our own image, if we're not careful. We may even justify such inventions in the name of Reformation. You see Jeroboam's religion in the northern kingdom claiming to be the worship of Yahweh, but it was a reinvention. It was not Reformation, it was reinvention. Jeroboam is making stuff up, and then he's slapping Yahweh's name onto it. We cannot simply look to history to justify whatever we want to do. That's what Jeroboam did with the golden calf. That's what Jehu did in rolling the clock back to Jeroboam's form of religion. The question is always, is it biblical or not? You cannot simply slap Jesus' name on whatever innovation you would like to pursue. There are churches today that are barely recognizable as Christian churches at all. And I don't say that to be crass. I don't say that to be uh, you know, critical, but just to, to say when you go into a church and, and you don't know where you are, I don't know what's going on. There is nothing but recognizably Christian in the service that is going on. If the apostles would not recognize what we are saying and what we are doing, then there's a good chance we shouldn't be doing it. But there is another type of false reformation I want to mention just briefly, And this was the kind of reformation that I grew up around, which went by the name instead of Restoration. This is actually an entire field of historical and sociological study. Historians recognize the American Restoration Movement, sometimes called the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement, as part of the 19th century revivalism that gave birth to many different religious sects, some of them orthodox, some of them heterodox, some of them outright heretical. This was the period of Charles Finney, It was the point of origin for the Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses. It gave us the churches of Christ. It gave us dispensationalism. It paved the way for the appearance of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements at the turn of the century. And not all of those were part of the same restoration movement, but they were all part of that same historical and social milieu, if you will, that, that kind of gave birth to many different religious traditions and ideas. Now, in one sense, the idea of restoration could get us closer to real reformation than either revolution or reinvention would. If you think about restoring a classic car, which some of you guys have done, or restoring a piece of antique furniture, which some of you ladies uh, like to do, then you can, you can understand, oh, that, that's, that's a helpful analogy, that restoration can be an appropriate analogy if we're thinking about taking something back to its original uh, state. And so you need to strip off the old layers of paint, and you need to restore the original features and the beauty of that item. That's all well and good. But the problem is, when we begin to think about religious restoration, we run into two issues. The first is that restoration of this kind is often characterized more in terms of reestablishment than restoration. You will see in restorationist churches the mindset that the church fell away and had to be restored. That the Christian faith was corrupted and lost and, and had to be rediscovered and reintroduced. I, I, I've warned you before, I think this kind of thinking is present even in some Reformed churches where th- there doesn't seem to be any real acknowledgement of Christianity between the time of Augustine and the time of Luther and Calvin. And that, that's a problem. If that's the case, what are we to make of Jesus' promise that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it? Are we supposed to believe that evil did overcome the church for a time? Maybe from the 2nd century or from the 5th century until the 16th century or the 1800s and only then it was rebuilt and restored. That, that is not like restoring a classic car or an antique piece of furniture. It's like someone replacing your dining chairs with bar stools and then you bringing the dining chairs back into their proper place and saying, see, we've restored the dining room. It's like, well, kind of, but when we think about religious restoration, that's not what we're doing. (laughs) We're not not reestablishing something that disappeared. We are simply trying to return to God's word and to his will. The second problem with this kind of religious restoration is that it can be rather naive and rather presumptuous about the historical reality of the Christian faith. The first century was not a golden age of purity that must be restored. I mean, if you say, we wanna just get back to the time of the apostles, I wanna to say to you, have you read the New Testament? I mean, seriously, like we've been preaching for what, three years through 1 Corinthians. Have you read any of those passages that we've preached on? This is not the golden age of purity. Yet There, there are some wonderful things. The spirit is working in his church and he's preaching uh, truth through these men. Praise God for all of that. But do you realize that Paul was not thought highly of in many of the first century churches? That this is a real problem that he has to address in multiple epistles. No era of the church ever has been this kind of golden age of purity, including the generation that gave us the Westminster Confession. Thank God for those men. Praise God for all that God did at that time. But that wasn't the perfect golden age of the church either. Restoration is often very reductionistic. It treats the Bible as a handbook of rules that if we can simply reinstate them, will produce the desired outcome. But the historical reality of the church is very different. Yes, the Bible is the ultimate and only infallible authority for faith and practice, but you were not the first one to read the Bible, and neither am I. And neither were the men in the 1800s, or in the 1600s, or in the 500s, We are not trying to reestablish something that was lost or destroyed, and neither should we try merely to return the church to its original condition, as if that were even possible. We should be seeking biblical reformation, and that involves repentance and reverence and a recognition that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. It's a recognition that the church in the 5th century, after 400 years of reflecting on the New Testament scriptures, had more insights than many of the members of churches in the first century. And so too in the 10th century and so too in the 16th century and God willing, so too in the 21st century. Now, at at times I wonder, I I think that we're, we're stupider than many of our fathers in many ways, not just religiously. But ideally what you are seeing is that the spirit as he continues to grow and teach the church is not revealing new truth, but he's giving us better understanding of that original truth once for all delivered to the saints. The departures of our fathers from the scriptures should not be upheld, but their insights and their implementation of biblical truth should carry a great deal of weight in our own faith and practice. Whatever the Protestant Reformation may have become over time, we should not forget its original purpose and aim. The goal was not separation or to create a new sect. The goal was to encourage repentance along biblical lines. And yes, separation did in fact happen. And it was not always the Protestants' fault, obviously. You you get put out of the church and, and you're separated whether you want to be or not. Sometimes men who stand up and plead for change are asked to leave or not asked at all. They're simply shown the door. But subsequent separation, even when it was unjust, even when it was violently caused, should not be a reason for perpetual separation or hostile sectarianism. The reformers acknowledged that the Roman church's errors were serious, even fatal to being considered a true church. And that was especially the case as the controversy dragged on and as later generations arose who had only ever known Protestantism. But the reformational position was never really clear. And that continues to be the case even today as you find that some Protestant churches will accept Roman Catholic baptism and some will not. Some will say, well, Rome is an apostate church and there's no way in which we can acknowledge that they are Christian at all. And others will say, no, they're, they're corrupt to be sure, but, but not entirely rejected. If Rome baptizes in the name of the triune God and affirms the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, how could you not accept their baptism? But you see, the point is that Reformation is incomplete. I, I find it incredibly providential and ironic and slightly hilarious that the Roman church is concluding a council this weekend in which they are discussing women deacons and positions on LGBTQ questions. And the progressives in the Roman church are up in arms because the church did not come out strongly in favor of being more welcoming to the LGBTQ members of their community, so to speak. This council is being concluded today by a mass led by a man who many traditional Roman Catholics don't even believe is a Christian many of my traditional Roman Catholic friends will tell you the Pope is a hypocrite he's a false Pope what does that tell you that tells you there are still people there who are seeking God's way even as corrupt and misguided as it may be and it tells you there is still room for reformation still a place to call for repentance And I think the analogy of the Northern Kingdom is helpful in this regard. Jeroboam's calf worship was the introduction of idolatrous corruptions to the worship of Yahweh that amounted to an almost different religion. And yet, it was still Yahweh who was being worshiped, even if sinfully. The Israelites who worshiped at the calf shrines were still circumcised. The problem was not that they were not members of the covenant, the problem is they are members of the covenant and they are breaking the covenant by their idolatry. Do you see the analogy? In a similar way, we should see the Reformation not as the development of our church or a new sect, but rather as part of a movement and work that has continued since Hezekiah and Josiah's time. Reformation is not a kind of Christianity, but it is rather an ongoing ministry of grace operating in and among the Christian church. And there is an astonishing example of this in Hezekiah's Reformation. When Hezekiah led the southern kingdom in covenantal and liturgical reforms, he invited those from the northern kingdom to join them. This is during the time that Assyrian incursions have destroyed the northern kingdom. They have basically cut the head off the political state. But there are still many Israelites in the northern kingdom who are very discombobulated. They've seen judgment come upon their nation. They don't know what's going to happen next. What does Hezekiah do? He reaches out to them and he says, join us in worshiping God come to Jerusalem where you should have been all along and worship God according to his word. Listen, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses one through five. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to Yahweh God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time, listen, in the prescribed manner. What's, what's happening here? Hezekiah is not scheduling a joint service with Jeroboam's priests. <laughs> He's not saying, hey, you guys bring like your mobile golden calf and you can do the first part of the service and then my priest will do the second part of the service and then we'll all gather together and hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? That's not what's happening. He's saying, look, God has brought judgment on your house and, and you've not been obedient to the law and we haven't either. And we need to get together and observe the Passover according to the law, and we want you to come with us. Why? Well, those are apostate Israelites. Apostate, what was that last word? Israelites. They're members of the covenant. They're disobedient. How do we fix that? We cut them off? No. We call them to repentance. Please don't misunderstand. We will not be having joint services with a Roman Catholic parish or the Lesbiterian church down the road. But Hezekiah's Reformation was not designed to rally support for southern Judaism as opposed to idolatrous northern Judaism. Reformation, then and today, is a call to repentance. And the call is to all of God's people to let go of their idols and unite in the true worship of God. And to that extent, you're being very patient this morning, I appreciate it. We should be Protestants with a lowercase p. Whenever and everywhere we see compromise and corruption in the Christian church, down the road or in our own district, that will mean not only objecting to errors that we see elsewhere, but a willingness to repent in terms of our own faith and practice whenever necessary. We need to be careful about being Protestants with an uppercase P. Why? Because it can easily become a sectarian brand that we wear proudly to distinguish us from the other teams. The goal of the Reformation in its best and most biblical sense is repentance and obedience to the religion revealed by God in the Bible. It is not the formation of 3,000 different denominations. We are not supposed to trade one pope for 3,000 popes with every man doing what is right in his own eyes. We are not supposed to take pride in rejecting Christmas services in the church calendar only to schedule Reformation Day services and to institute new penitential seasons. We should not model our worship and teaching in such a way that no Christian in the last 2,000 years would recognize what we are doing as Christian. The goal should not be sectarian or idiosyncratic. The goal should be to be biblical and historical and Catholic, lowercase c. Every Lord's Day, We confess that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and that is not this congregation, and that is not the OPC, and that is not the denominations affiliated with NAPARC. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church is not the one headquartered in the Vatican or in the various patriarchal sees of the Orthodox Church. Neither is it the Platonic form of church which some have taken the concept of the invisible church to be. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church is real, Historical, earthly, messy, and sadly divided, but it will not always be. Jesus prayed for the unity of his disciples, and unless you believe that the Father said no, then one day we look forward to seeing that prayer answered. And I know what you're thinking, as good Protestant and Reformed Christians, you should be thinking this that unity is not institutional, it's doctrinal and spiritual. And yes and amen. But do you think that the church is presently united doctrinally and spiritually? Do you think that sectarianism, like we see today, will persist when we do have true doctrinal and spiritual unity? Is the church united to Christ right now? Yes, absolutely. Praise God for it. That's the most important unity because it's the unity everything else is based upon. But is the church also divided and in need of widespread significant reforms? Yes, she is, most definitely. And so how will unity be achieved? Well, obviously, what everyone needs to do is repent today and admit that I am right about everything. (laughs) And if all of you and all other Christians in Phoenix will agree to do church my way, we'll get along wonderfully. Well, that's one way to move forward. I would suggest another. I would suggest that we actually look back to what Luther called for in 1517. He showed us a more biblical path. Let me read you four of his 95 theses, and the lesson will be yours. Number one on that church door. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number 37. Any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church. And this is granted him by God, even without indulgence letters. Number 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Number 94, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ to their head through penalties, death, and hell. Let us thank God for faithful men who have called the church in many generations to repentance, obedience, and loyalty to our Lord Jesus Christ. They were imperfect as all men except our Lord Jesus are but they lived and died by faith and have exhorted us to do the same. Let us give thanks for a heritage of grace and aspire always to pursue biblical fidelity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God, we pray that you would help us to know true Reformation, not merely historical instances of it, not merely the Reformation that other churches are sadly and sorely in need of, but pervasive reformation, daily reformation, personal and familial and congregational reformation, bringing our lives and our worship more and more into conformity with your blessed and revealed will. O God, forgive our many failures and strengthen us in loyalty to your Son, for we ask in his name. Amen.